0: let's move on to ventilator desynchrony. So patient vent dyssynchrony um, is also a favorite topic of mine. When I bring this up, uh, people are often like, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. They're kind of desynchronous. Just like sedate them and move on to APRV, please. Um, and I hear that. And I used to think about that. So we're going to start with a little like, why do you care moment? Um, here is why you care. I just did not appreciate when I was a resident and I really sort of into my first or second year as a fellow, I just didn't appreciate the extent to which patient ventilator dyssynchrony can cause hypoxemia. You know, it can really cause pretty bad hypoxemia. And the nice thing about it is that it's low hanging fruit. Unlike what we're about to talk about with APRV, there's not a like P high, P low, T high, calculate the this. It's pretty straightforward. So don't miss that low-hanging fruit because often you'll find if you just fix this problem, if you fix the synchrony problem, you may have resolved much or sometimes all of your hypoxemia problem. So this is how I want you to think about patient vent dyssynchrony. The ventilator and the patient, it's a relationship. They're in a relationship together. Just like most relationships, the patient and the vent can be having a good relationship. This is what a good relationship looks like. A good relationship looks like those waveforms, they're nice and smooth. We see that the respiratory rate of 16 that we program is the same respiratory rate of 16 that is actually happening. The tidal volumes are the same. The peak pressures are not that high. We're not fighting anything. Lovely. This is an example of a good relationship between the patient and the ventilator. Or patients can have a bad relationship with the ventilator. Voila, this is an example of what a bad relationship looks like. These people need couples counseling. Why? We'll look at this. So the respiratory rate we set of 16 does not match the actual respiratory rate of 28. The patient doesn't want a rate of 16, they want one of 28 the tidal volumes don't match. The patient wants a bigger tidal volume than the vent is delivering. Your peak pressures are high because, you know, the patient may be trying to exhale while the vent is trying to inhale. No bueno. And the waveform. The waveform is irregular. It's all over the place. It's inconsistent. Once you get used to seeing enough vents, you can just glance at it and be like, disynchrony right there. Now, there's an easy, straightforward way to solve dyssynchrony, But it's not the best way. So here is the thing: the uh, sledgehammer approach to desynchrony is go nuts with sedation, snow them, and you know. My problem with that, as I like to say to my fellows, is using this heavy-handed sedation as your primary strategy to fix patient vent desynchrony, is as Oscar Wilde would say, the last refuge of the unimaginative. It probably means that you don't really know what you're doing. So how are we going to figure this out? It turns out it's actually quite simple. You simply ask the patient what they want. Um, you know, I was at bedside the other day because the event was alarming. It was maybe even last night. Um, and, you know, there was an RT with me and um, the patient was waking up and sort of super desynchronous. And you know I start messing with the vent and like the RTs like, "Well, what are we going to do?" And I was like, "Oh, we'll just ask the patient what they want." And they started laughing at me. Um and fair enough, but I was like, "No, no, I was actually quite serious about that." Because that's what you do. You just can't ask them in words cuz they have a tube down their throat, but you can ask them what they want by reading the vent. Um I often find that The best place to start, not always the best place to end up, but the best place to start is often pressure support because pressure support lets them be in the driver's seat and it can give you a pretty good sense of which one of the things they want. Um, Because sometimes they just want to be in the driver's seat. You know, I think this is especially true for patients who are intubated for a non-pulmonary problem, for patients intubated for airway protection especially. Um, because they don't actually don't have a lung problem. They're breathing fine on their own. They just want to breathe however they want to breathe. So if I put them on pressure support, they're breathing fantastic. They look great. I kind of maybe titrate the degree of pressure support to get them the tidal volumes they're comfortable with. Cool. Call it a day. Leave them on pressure support. You know, I think some people think about pressure support as a weaning mode and they'll be like, okay we're going to put them on pressure support for precisely 30 minutes. Then we're going to do an ABG. Then if we're going to take them off pressure support because if we don't, something bad will happen like, oh wait, they'll stop breathing on their own, go to the backup rate and you put them back on a rate. Yeah. The ways that pressure support can go horribly wrong are pretty minimal. Now, that being said, a lot of the patients, especially the patients who are intubated for a pulmonary reason, and the patients who are just super sick, multi-system organ dysfunction in the ICU, they often can't sustain pressure support. They're just too sick. But in those patients, it helps me figure out what kind of thing they want, or at least what category of thing they want. Um, So if they can't sustain pressure support, you know, the next thing I'll try doing is messing with their inspiratory discomfort. So imagine for one moment that you're trying to take a breath in and you want to take a breath really fast. But instead there's this very annoying machine that's making you take a breath very, very slowly. That would be extremely irritating to you. In addition, you know, this is where the sort of waveforms become important and the difference between volume control Versus pressure control in PRVC, because if you think about a natural breath, you take in a breath. There's faster inspiratory flow at the beginning, and then it slows down near the end of the breath. That's how we normally breathe. Patients, understandably, are more comfortable breathing how they normally breathe. Straight up volume control doesn't have that. You have a square waveform, not this sort of decelerating inspiratory waveform. So sometimes just putting them on pressure control or PRVC solves their problem. If that doesn't solve their problem, or it partially does and they seem a little better, but not totally, the next thing I'll do is I'll try and give them a faster inspiratory time. It's pretty uncommon that patients really want a slower inspiratory time for comfort. Now, as we'll talk about later, sometimes we do that, but not for comfort. It's for hypoxemia. But most patients, if it's just a comfort issue, they feel more comfortable with a faster inspiratory phase. Because again, if you're trying to go, and the vent is trying to go, yeah, it's not super awesome. Low-hanging fruit, I'll try that first. Now, one of the big pieces of information that I can get from putting them on pressure support is what do they want? Do they just want a high minute ventilation? You know, you put them on pressure support and you realize, oh, the reason they're so angry at volume support or volume control or like any kind of AC mode is because they want a minute ventilation of 14. We were trying to give them a minute ventilation of eight. They were unhappy with that. What you will see with that is on pressure support, they will be breathing fast and they will be taking high tidal volumes. Um. You often see this, one, in patients who have a metabolic acidosis, right? It's the equivalent of cusmalling. I mean, that's what they're doing, basically. They're like, people, people, my bicarb is two. You're not giving me enough you know, minute ventilation to blow off all the CO2, fix it. Yeah, so that's one thing. If that is the case, often you should just leave them on pressure support because they can do a better job Of providing the appropriate amount of self regulated ventilation on pressure support, then you're going to do on an AC mode. Now, if they're super weak, they can't maintain it. You may need to rethink that. But the other thing you can do is pressure support doesn't always mean five over five, right? If they like seem to be comfortable synchronous with pressure support, but they're not quite getting the tidal volumes, bump them up on the pressure support. There's no problem with that. Bump them up till they're comfortable their respiratory rate goes down a little bit. Maybe they're getting the minute ventilation they need. Now, if you have a patient who is on pressure support and you're like, okay, they're taking high rate and high tidal volumes, but their bicarb is fine. Why are they doing this? Um, Well, let's do them individually. High respiratory rate. If they're taking kind of normal-ish tidal volumes, but their respiratory rate is really high, then I'm like, okay, are you agitated? Are you anxious? Are you in pain? Am I just not sedating you enough? So if they're breathing on pressure support, their tidal volumes are normal. They have a high respiratory rate. I'm like, okay, let's sort of mess around. And usually I start with pain control and I'll usually give them like a little fentanyl bolus or like a moderate fentanyl bolus and sort of see what happens. Does that make them more comfortable? Now, there's a little caveat here, which is if you put them on pressure support, and they have a high respiratory rate, but low tidal volumes, that means that they're super, super weak. They can't take deep breaths on their own. I test out that theory, that sort of rapid, shallow breathing thing, which is bad, by I go up on the pressure support. I start at five. They're breathing at 40 on a pressure support of five. Then I go to 10. Then I go to 15. If Their respiratory rate slows down as you give them more pressure support and they go up on their tidal volumes. That's telling you they're just weak. That's telling you that they're just, their diaphragm's weak. They're sort of multi system organ failure. They have ICU myopathy, whatever it is. Those patients, um, I will usually put back on an AC setting because it's telling me they're just not ready. you never know, but yeah, they're usually not ready if that's what's happening. Now, a little bit more complicated. What if the patient wants high tidal volumes? So this does get more complicated. Um, mostly because if the patient is having lung injury, you actually really don't want them to have high tidal volumes. Now, the evidence on whether a patient who's taking high tidal volumes when they're doing it a lot by themselves, right? So they're on pressure support. They have positive pressure of five, but they're really initiating the negative pressure breath. Um, Is that really the same as me with somebody who's paralyzed on an AC mode and forcing, you know, 12 cc's per kilo into their lungs? Are those two things the same thing? The evidence is unclear. I strongly suspect that they're not necessarily. Um, And some of the evidence also suggests that they're not necessarily, because the other time you'll see this is often in the neuro patients. The bad neuro patients will often do this, that they'll be super desynchronous with the vent. You put them on pressure support and they just do this like huge tidal volume. They'll take like 700. Then they'll breathe, you know, kind of slowly, slower rate, but high tidal volumes. That's often what I call neuro breathing. Um, Now, most of the time, unless they're really unfortunate, the neuro patients don't also have lung injury necessarily. So often I will let them sort of take slightly higher tidal volumes than I might otherwise. I'll turn the pressure support way down because when they're on an AC mode, you know, significant vent dyssynchrony is not super good for your lungs either. So my personal take, especially given some of the literature that on pressure support modes, you know, higher cc's per kilo tidal volume is probably not harming people without lung injury. I'll kind of let them do that if that's what they want to do. What if though, what if you have a patient who does have lung injury? They're super dyssynchronous. They have bad lung injury. And when you put them on, they just want high tidal volumes. You had put them on VCAC. You had given them tidal volumes of six cc's per kilo. You'd measured how tall they are. You pat yourself on the back because lung protective, go team. But the patient is like, nope, I don't want six cc's per kilo. I want 10 cc's per kilo. And then you and the patient have a fight and they have a bad relationship with the vent. The patient gets upset, the vent starts alarming, this upsets the nurses, and off we go. So what do you do if the patients want a high tidal volume, your lung injury patient wants high tidal volumes? Now, this gets a little complicated, but sometimes the reason they want high tidal volumes is simple, they're acidemic, they have a bad metabolic acidosis, fair enough, the answer there is, Fix the metabolic acidosis. It's more complicated if they just want to feel high tidal volumes because they want to feel like their lungs are fully expanded. Now you can imagine, you know, especially anybody who has bad asthma, one of the worst feelings ever is when you're trying to take a deep breath and get a deep breath in and expand your lungs fully and you can't do it. I mean, that feeling is irritating to pretty much everybody, I assume, certainly irritating to me. Um, And sometimes that is what these patients are trying to do. They want to feel like their lungs are expanded. If I am in that situation, patient who has lung injury, they really just want to feel like their lungs are open, their lungs are expanded. You know, this is when I will go to APRV often. Um, We'll talk about this in one of the later sections, but when I first learned about APRV, I sort of was like, this seems like it should be really comfortable, like this is really unnatural, this is weird. I guess you just do it as a last resort when like you can't oxygenate everybody else, Hail Mary, I don't know. Um, what I have actually subsequently discovered is for some patients, not all patients, but actually more patients than I would have thought, APRV is very comfortable. They like APRV. They are comfortable on APRV. They are much more synchronous on APRV. Why is that? Because if their fight with the vent, if the thing that is causing all these relationship problems with the vent is that the patient wants to feel like their lungs are open and we're telling the vent to give them like little bitty six cc's per kilo, if that's your problem, APRV might solve it. Why? Well, APRV is referred to as open lung ventilation for a reason. It keeps the lungs open. It gives patients that nice feeling of like... Taking a nice deep breath, everything is open. You're not sort of trying to fight against somebody giving you little tidal volumes. So I have actually found that in a number of patients, in a certain population of patients, um, they do great with APRV. And in fact, I've even had subsets of patients who are having vent dysynchrony issues. Their lungs aren't really that bad, but for whatever reason, I can't just do pressure support, and they end up being super comfy on APRV. And I do it mainly for synchrony and mainly. For comfort. So, if your patient is dyssynchronous, do not underestimate the amount of hypoxia that can cause. And yes, you may need to snow them at some point, but first try these things. If you've gone through this little process and you're like, okay, they were unhappy with every single thing I did, they have bad lung injury, that's when I will snow them and paralyze them. Often, I personally will paralyze early. For those of you who are familiar with the literature of the Rose trial, I think there's actually a lot of problems with that study. So I will paralyze early after I've gone through this exercise. Um, And one of the reasons I do it is think on this. It takes a lot more sedation to suppress the respiratory centers of the brain than the cortex. Now, that's not super surprising, right? We breathe while we're sleeping right? It's the whole principle that we do conscious sedation on, right? We are like, okay, hips dislocated. We got to, so we're going to give you some propofol, but we're trying to find that balance where you're out, but still breathing. So we all know that it takes a lot more sedation to put the brainstem to sleep and force you to stop breathing than it does to put you to sleep. Um, As such, sometimes the problem is that, if you're trying to do this just with sedation and not paralysis, what you end up doing is giving whopping doses of sedation. That is problematic for two reasons. One, not super awesome for their hemodynamics. Uh, generally, if you're on a million of propofol and fentanyl and Versed and whatever, you're probably not helping their hemodynamics. Um, two, delirium and ultimately waking up from the vent you know, super high doses of sedation for super long times. And if you're thinking about this whole thing and their vent and their lungs are really that bad, it's probably going to go on for a minute, right? It's not like they're going to get extubated tomorrow. So if you're just doing this by just snowing them, you're going to end up giving them so much sedation because it's going to take a lot to actually get those pesky brainstem respiratory centers to think they need to stop breathing that's why what I will do if I'm going to paralyze somebody and I just get to the end of this sort of little list of things and I'm like, okay, you know what? You know, your lungs are sick. None of these things worked. We just need to give you good six cc's per kilo lung protective ventilation. Then I will start sedating them. I will sedate them. I won't paralyze them initially. I will sedate them till they are comfortable. If at that point they are not fighting with the vent, they're synchronous with the vent, they're tolerating 60 cc's per kilo, fantastic, wonderful, that's great. I won't necessarily paralyze that patient if they're synchronous. So if I've sedated them enough that, you know, they're asleep, they're comfortable, they're not paralyzed, but they're synchronous, I'll call it a day. But you often, in fact, I find usually get to a point where you've sedated them enough, they're totally out. You're like external rubbing them and they're like but they're still desynchronous and they're still breathing. That's when I paralyze them. Um, and that is when I'm like, okay, I get like, I just have to paralyze you. Um, I try not to use paralysis too much. And really I found if I sort of go through the whole exercise I described, I use a lot less. That being said, I try never to say never because every time I have like, you're always going to be wrong if you use the word never a lot. Um, so I feel like I paralyze people when I have to. I don't do it as often as I used to before I sort of understood how to troubleshoot the vent. Sometimes it's just necessary.